Hey, deserving listeners. Today, in this episode, we're going to talk about the movie Split, the new M. Night Shyamalan movie called Split. It's about dissociative identity disorder or multiple personality disorder. Uh, Umberto and I went and saw the movie, and then Michael Drain from the Unpopular Culture podcast called me up and said, hey, let's talk about that movie because we're both clinicians and you don't want to talk with the the uh, lay person Umberto about this. You want to talk with a real clinician guest. So I said, Umberto, you're not on this episode. I'm going to talk with Michael Drain and we're going to talk about dissociative identity disorder and it's going to be two therapists talking about this. But before we go to that talk, this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Professor, <laughs> I said that funny. Okay, let's go to that talk with Michael Drain of the Unpopular Podcast, Unpopular Culture Podcast. <laughs> so we saw the movie Split over the weekend yeah. with uh, what is his name? Uh, James, James McAvoy. McAvoy. He's the he's the new Professor X in the X Men movies. Yeah. For anybody who hasn't uh, seen this movie or doesn't know who he is, yeah. So just a warning up front, I think it might be smart to say that if you haven't seen this movie, you probably should before listening to this show because it would be very difficult not to give away all the things that happen in the movie. Does that sound fair? Yeah, like any M. Night Shyamalan movie, if you have the ending spoiled for you, it is a significant harm to your viewing pleasure. So (laughs) if you plan on seeing it, see it before... We uh, talk about it. Completely agreed. Because the ending has a lot to do with what we're going to talk about. Right. So. so that being said, uh, I guess from here on out, you know, no hold, no holds bar. So, um, so the in the movie Split, the character, uh, his name is Kevin, and he is uh, diagnosed with disassociative identity disorder. Um, do you want to take a stab at an overview on that, or should I? Sure. Dissociative identity disorder used to be called multiple personality disorder, which it's more widely understood to be. Basically, when you take a human being as an early child and you put them through ongoing, difficult, scary trauma, the brain will cope in a number of ways. And one of the ways that it has apparently available to its biology is to Dissociate, meaning you distance yourself from reality. The example I like to tell people is you're driving in a car on a path that you take all the time. You arrive at work and suddenly you realize you hadn't even been thinking about the route you took. You just, you just sort of, without thinking, drove your car to work. And although that's not dissociation, it's in the direction of dissociation. Right. You're, you're awake and you're conscious, but your, your consciousness is focusing on, you know, other things other than what your body is doing. For instance, you know, trigger warning. If you're being repeatedly raped by your grandfather, it helps the psyche to distance yourself from that as best as you can. And, and if you're traumatized at a young age, the brain is malleable enough at that time to dissociate. And one simple dissociative tool available to us is to just simply separate ourselves from reality. That mechanism will carry on into later life, but doesn't have any different personalities or alters, they call them. They don't call them personalities anymore, they call them alters. Well, another form of dissociation is to actually split the psyche into distinct personality or alter sections, so to speak, so that you have one alter, for instance, who is the one that takes the brunt of the abuse. You have another alter who is the good child. You have another alter who is good at school. You have another alter who retains the childishness that was never given to this person and so on. These different alters are really quite distinct personality states. The experiences that that alter has in life will sometimes be only remembered by that alter. Now, there's a lot of skepticism about dissociative identity disorder. Plenty of people, clinicians included, think that it's fake. And I've, in my career, 20 years in therapy, have 
have kind of vacillated on this because it's not a specialty of mine. In more recent years, past five or so years, I've actually become somewhat of a specialist in trauma and have come to completely accept the reality that dissociative identity disorder is a thing. It's rare. Is there anything in particular that convinced you? Was there a event or was it more of a series of events? Or For me, at, in my early years as a therapist, I had a very rudimentary understanding of dissociation and of trauma. I just thought trauma you know, was, was just like a bad day. I, I had a bad day yesterday at work. Right. And, and that's similar to trauma. I'm exaggerating to some extent. But as I started actually experiencing actual clients, I started realizing that trauma is really a specific thing. The effect it, that it has on the brain is really quite specific. And it's not, and unless you've been through it, you really don't even know what it is. And then dissociation is a thing that's actually quite specific too. Um, so that was sort of the, the underpinnings of my eventual work with someone a colleague of mine who actually treated dissociative identity disorder and my exposure to a local famous influential person specialist in trauma, Laura Brown, who I have heard gives talks on dissociative identity disorder and have become completely convinced that it's a real thing. Then I started actually talking with people with dissociative identity disorder and I realized that they don't present like someone who's faking it. And they're extremely ashamed of it. They don't even want to they don't even want to tell anyone about it. And there's so much evidence that plays into it. And then you start reading on Reddit, you start reading people's accounts, you know, that that they talk about it. And there's there's a lot of commonalities for it. Now, again, it's rare, but it's common enough that a lot of people talk very similarly about their condition. And again, they're ashamed of it. So if you were faking it, why would you be ashamed of it? Right. right? It doesn't make any sense. Right. The, the counter argument is that this is something more consistent with more of a cluster B personality disorder sort of deal. I've even heard clinicians straight up say, you know, this is a way to get attention from a borderline personality. Right. And, and that happens. Uh, the fact is dissociative identity disorder or DID is faked by people to get attention. That's that's un, that's you know demonstrated by empirical findings. Sure, yeah. But that doesn't mean that it still doesn't exist, right? And there's been a ton of because this has been a central question in psychology for decades. Does this thing really exist? And there's been a lot of controversy. Like I like I think the the book Sybil. I don't know if you've heard of the book Sybil or the movie Sybil. I have, yeah. It later came out that she was faking it the whole time or something. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. There have been these controversial, really, fa you know, Sybil was a famous movie and book in the 60s or 70s. There's been a lot of controversy and backlash. And so it's been a central question in psychology. And so there's been a lot of research. And the consensus is, is that it's a thing. So dissociation is a more general thing. DID is something kind of a specific sort of dissociation. Dissociation in general would be a lack of connection between your thoughts, your memories, your feelings, or even your sense of identity. I've had patients describe it as a out-of-body experience, and this is something that can occur. In DID, it does normally occur by extreme childhood trauma. Not to say that dissociation doesn't occur in adults too. If they were in a, you know, victim of rape, for example, or in a traumatic event, it's still a part of the psyche to sort of check out that out of body experience is something I've heard explained a lot while somebody's going through trauma. Right. In my experience, the vast majority of people who even have the ability to dissociate have been through early childhood, ongoing, very difficult trauma. In my experience, if, if you haven't had that experience, if you've never dissociated, for instance, before the age of 10, in my experience, you're, it's not easy to develop that coping mechanism. Hmm. So it, it's just something that I found, at least anecdotally, with my clients. Sure. I, in, in my you know speculation, the brain just doesn't have the malleability or the plasticity that it does in early childhood to develop uh, a dissociative response. Right. And I mean, you can really logically think about what's happening. A small child, if you're being raped by your grandfather or a family member, that's your primary caregiver as a child. That's the person you're looking to 
to walk you through childhood and, you know, keep you safe. And if you have that, that toxic element, it's your very own caregiver. It's your parents. There's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to escape from that. So the only escape then becomes within your own mind to literally check, check out. And this can manifest in very extreme ways. Watching the event from the outside in as if you were floating above it, like an out-of-body experience. Right. Um, yeah. Well said. Because in, when you're a kid, it serves a, a function to escape from a difficult situation that you're trapped in. But the problem is that once those neuronal connections are made, then as an adult, at the drop of a hat, even if you're not actually in danger, the dissociative response will kick in. So you could be at a party and feel a little socially anxious, and that will trigger the dissociative response. Or you could be having sex with your partner whom you love and feel safe with. But there's something about the sexual act that reminds you of the abuse you went through, and your brain will kick in the dissociative response. Similar with dissociative identity disorder, the alters will engage in situations that as a child were quite necessary, but as an adult aren't as necessary. And, and that's where the distress comes in because people, people don't want to dissociate. People with just regular dissociation, it doesn't feel good to just at the drop of a hat suddenly just disappear from the world or become real spacey or become you know, not yourself. Narcolepsy or epilepsy comes to mind almost like an involuntary um, thing that sort of takes control. Exactly. You know? Yeah, and it doesn't feel good too. It's it's right. It it it's not without its pain or it's not a joyous feeling. You know, it feels right. it feels bad. People will lose their car. They'll park a car and then uh, walk away from the car, and then they'll stop dissociating, and they don't even know where their car is. <laughs> and so. And, you know, those are very real experiences. People will lose entire weeks. They won't be able to remember. They'll go on vacation and be stressed out being overseas and dissociate the entire time, come home, not remember the entire trip or, or have very vague memories. And that doesn't feel good. And dissociative identity disorder, same thing. Um, suddenly, one alter sort of wakes up and you're like, where have I been? What day is it? How long have I been out? And that's a very real experience. And so it's people with dissociative uh, disorders really do not like it. And so when I treat people with dissociation, step one is actually just helping them to cope with it because we're not going to be able to take it away very quickly. And so they have to be able to just adjust. They, they have to tell their friends that they have this thing. They have to become familiar with it. They have to accept that their body is going to do this every now and then. And, and that takes time. There's a lot of shame and a lot of fear about the response. Because in the general community, you know, people understand depression, they understand addiction, but they, you know, you ask the average person on the street what dissociation is, they'll just, you know, look back at you dissociatively. Yeah, what's that? <laughs> yeah, what's that? And so, or they'll think like what a lot of people say is it's not real. Right. And so it a lot of education and acceptance of the situation is is important for people. Yeah, this is one of those diagnoses that is um, made popular by the media and consequently has its line of uh, stigmas and stereotypes that come with it. And this movie is sort of an example of that. I went in with a very skeptical eye and I went in trying to line it up clinically to see if, you know, if it, how legitimate it was, not expecting it to be, but that's the fun in it. But so when you boil it down, Dissociating is a way to cope with stress, to say the least, trauma as a child. And it becomes, it sort of, it stays with you. It's something that you continue to do as an adult. Yep. And as you were talking, you know, imagining somebody in a coffee shop just trying to avoid stress, to avoid dissociating, like a panic attack, the fear of having one creates it in itself. You know, it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Sort of like the Incredible Hulk trying not to yeah. get angry, walking through the world, just trying to keep themselves at baseline all the time with this overwhelming fear that something will take over. That, I would say, is indicative of people who have are entered treatment and already are at least somewhat aware of the a thing called dissociation. Prior to treatment, what most often 
you hear from people is they don't even know they're dissociating. They'll, they become somewhat in denial of their dissociation. They'll complain typically dissociative clients or dissociative identity disorder clients will come into therapy with other complaints. They'll say that their relationships are falling apart or they have a memory problem or they have an addiction problem or they have a suicidal problem or an anxiety problem or something. And then over the course of interviewing and assessment, I will start to zero in on the possibility that they are dissociating. And then they'll look at me, once we kind of roll through the various different signs, they'll look at me and they'll say like, oh my God, yeah, you're right. I do. When I feel like I'm not in my body, they don't even know how to describe it. Because it's such a scary experience, they like to sometimes even forget about it, that it even happened. Right. And so then they start entering that zone that you're talking about where they're like, okay, how can I not dissociate? Because <laughs> I don't like that. Yeah. yeah. It's almost impossible for me to even imagine what it would be like to walk around in the world like that. Yeah. Some of the stats I found say there's an average of two to four personalities present when the patient is initially diagnosed, but then the average goes from 13 to 15 personalities over the course of treatment. One of the more extreme examples I found is 100, 100, 100 different personalities. Yeah which takes a, a level of imagination and cognitive ability I don't think I even possess. Yeah. You know, sort of, and, and then there's an environmental trigger for possibly each of these. Yeah, it's complicated. Uh, the simplest explanation is, right, is the way I depicted it earlier, which is that each altar has its own role to fill. And in fulfilling that role, they get good at, fulfilling that role and they also protect the other alters from having to deal with that role. You know, the simplest example is there's one alter that often is the one that has to take the abuse. And so by doing that, it sections off those memories and those experiences to that to that particular alter. I, I should mention that there's a wide variety of whether or not the alter's memories are known to the other alters. Um, as depicted in the movie split, some of the alters seem to know what the other alter knows, and some of the alters have no idea what's happening. Right, right. And the old the, and the woman character was, like you were saying, a, a protective of the other personalities. Yeah, right. And so was uh, Dennis, right? Yes. Yep. You know, Dennis was this rough and tough, manly man. The, the older woman was like a a matriarch who was always in control. But kind of a hard ass too, sort of a, you know, smack your hands with a ruler sort of uh, type. <laughs> Dennis and the older woman seem to know what was happening to the other alters, but they didn't seem to know what was happening with the little kid. The little kid's memories seem to be fairly sectioned off. And then the what we might say the, the core altar of Kevin, which we don't see until later on in the movie, he clearly ha had no idea what the other alters were experiencing during the number of months that preceded that moment, right? That's right. I think it was actually years, wasn't it? Because when he uh, he said, you know, he came out of it, and I think that was maybe the only time you see Kevin is that there's a moment where he kind of uh, manifests. Right. And he says, is it still November 2014 or whatever it was? And she just looks at him like, no. Right. Um, you know, he had been checked out for years. So. Right. Yeah. Amazing. Now, it should be said that there, there's sort of a general range that alters tend to hang around. And it's, I can't remember the exact number in terms of the research, but in my experience, it's, you know, between five and 20 ish. So when you get up into the hundred range, that's pretty rare. But, you know, I, I could see it. I could see that happening. Can we talk about the difference between DID and schizophrenia? Yeah. Because I was talking with a listener and they had some confusion about that. So I thought it'd be cool to spend a minute diving into the differences between the two. Sure. In colloquial common lingo, schizophrenia is the word for dissociative identity disorder. People will say, oh, I'm so schizophrenic. On one hand, I'm like this. And on the other hand, I'm like that. And, <laughs> yes. and that's fine. But that is... What they what they mean to say is I'm so dissociative identity disorder. One day I'm like this, the other day. Also, schizophrenia, if I remember right, I think in Latin means split brain, and so it's you know the where it comes from implies a split in in personality, and so it is very different 
it's in a completely other category of mental illness that is more related to biology and can be triggered by traumas and often is, but it's a condition of the sort of classic what, you know, lay people might just call a crazy person, someone who hears voices, someone who hallucinates, someone who might talk to themselves, someone who might be very confused about what's happening. Paranoia. Yeah, paranoid, you know, the government is is listening to my thoughts. It's it's a very sad condition. It is. But it is. but completely different from dissociative identity disorder. So Yeah. So schizophrenia is uh, you know, boiled down, it's a you either have any combination of delusions where you believe you're a secret agent and the red cars are out to get you on the freeway, hallucinations which can manifest visually or audibly or um, more rare, but they do exist olfactory. You know, yep. you smell things that aren't there or tactile where you feel maybe bugs on your skin that aren't there. And then the really scary version of schizophrenia that I encounter a lot is command auditory or visual command hallucinations, voices in your head or images telling you to do something, which very often, and I, I'm sort of fascinated by why the human brain always goes here, but the command always, not always, but usually tends to tell you to hurt yourself or somebody else. Yeah, it's interesting that when the brain takes a turn like that, that it's so common to have those very similar kinds of thoughts. When people start hearing voices, a majority of the time, these voices are very mean to the person, saying things like, you're a piece of shit, right. you're a terrible person, you should just jump off a bridge, what's wrong with you, everyone knows you're stupid. You know, yep. And it's, it's just interesting how the brain does that. Now, that's not all the time. Sometimes schizophrenia, people with schizophrenia can hallucinate voices that are saying neutral or even positive things. But it's often quite nefarious and um, devious and uh, abusive. The voices. It, it can, it is absolutely, and it can go in the other direction. You have grandiose type delusions where you believe that you're Jesus Christ, or you have some kind of special power over other people. Right. So it's not always self-deprecating or self-destructive, but in my experience, it usually is maybe eighty percent of the time. But to differentiate schizophrenia from DID. These delusions and these uh, hallucinations, these aren't common symptoms of DID. So that would be the primary difference separating the two. Yeah, they're very, very different conditions. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I can see how a layperson might get those confused. So, you know, it's good to separate them. Suicide is a risk in both cases yeah. for yeah. similar reasons, but also kind of different reasons, I guess. Yeah. Um, if you have a voice in your head telling you to kill yourself, you know, that's a pretty powerful thing to have to deal with every single day. And some people do. Yeah, things in the movie split that I thought they did well with DID was the way the alters knew about each other and talked about each other was really quite accurate in my experience. The way that he lost time. I could tell that M. Night did a good job consulting with experts on DID. Yeah. I could sort of read between the lines and see... Uh, at least a number of consultants that were heavily involved, probably like scrutinizing. Because in my experience, even when experts are involved, when it comes to mental illness, it's usually pretty absurd. Yes. <laughs> this movie uh, avoided a lot of that, I thought, until the ending, which we'll get to in a second. But then um, <laughs> it just goes all bananas. Yeah. Um, yeah. The way he talked about himself as we. That, that's something that's common to DID people is they will say, we, not I. They'll say, we went to the store. They won't say, I went to the store because they don't feel as though it's an I. They feel it's the, as though it's a we. And so you'll hear people using we, and they hmm. did that in the movie. Did you, did you catch that in the movie? I did, yeah. They called it uh, – call, well, he and his personalities called themselves that's, – that's a weird sentence to try to structure – called themselves a horde, I think it was. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, early childhood trauma was clearly depicted and identified yes. as the cause, which I th and the way they showed the trauma, even though it was only for like two seconds, mm -hmm. it said a lot with those two seconds. Yeah. It, did. it did. He was in therapy 
which is a, a common experience for people with DID. And he was with a therapist who really understood his condition, which I thought was good, you know, at least accurate to some people's experience. He and his therapist were both aware that many in society and many in the field don't even think that DID is real, which they depicted, which was also accurate. Also, the therapist's approach to the different altars was pretty accurate, in my opinion. The way she talked to Barry and the way she tried to help Dennis feel safe. You remember that whole scene where she's really confronting Dennis and saying, I'm pretty sure you're not Barry. And I'm pretty sure, I think I'm talking to Dennis, even though I've never met Dennis. You know, Dennis, it's okay. You know, you can be yourself here. You know that I'm a safe person to talk to. You know, just all that, it was like exactly the way a therapist should be talking to someone in a situation like that. I thought they depicted that really well. Agreed. Yeah, they really seem to do their homework for the most part, with the exception of the the last quarter of the movie. Yeah. They made some interesting claims in the movie. The therapist, Dr. Was it Fletcher? I can't remember the name. Yeah. She like kind of, she represented the, the clinical authority in the movie and she kind of represented the, the knowledge base. When they did their homework for this movie, she was the voice of explaining what DID is to the audience in a fairly accurate way. And in the movie, she's a proponent of DID. She's talking to media outlets trying to advocate on their behalf. And then they go a step further and she suggests that the potential of a human being is potentially unlocked through DID. And then they made some very interesting claims. Some of the ones I caught were, she mentioned an example of a patient who was had a pen in both hands, a right hand and a left hand, and was writing two different things at the same time. She made a claim that the different personalities can have different IQs or intelligence levels, different allergies. One alter can be allergic to bees, bee stings, and another is not. Different cholesterol levels. And then the most interesting one I thought was she referenced a blind woman in Germany that was blind, but when she switched into another alter or another personality, she regained sight. So I don't know. What are your thoughts on the validity of such statements. Have you ever experienced anything like that? Do you know anything about? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts about it. The first thought I have is that it's similar to autism in that when people in the in movies and the lay public often talk about autism, or at least in the past, maybe not so much anymore, but after Rain Man, they would often, they equated autism with like some special superpower that... Like a savant. Yeah. Although there's a, I don't know, 10%, I don't know the exact percentage of people with autism have some sort of savant ability. The vast majority of people with autism don't. It's similar to DID. The vast majority, in my experience, of people with DID don't have some kind of extraordinary biological marker of their DID. Blind becoming sighted, writing with your opposite hand that you... So that's the first thought I have, is that it's it's probably even rarer than savantism. It's probably... Well, one, they don't measure a lot of those things because people with DID don't necessarily need to uh, be measured in that way. But it's pretty rare. So the second thing is, is I'm guessing that a number of those claims... I are not supported by the evidence. It's just a knee-jerk reaction. (laughs) I I think that what the reason for people to sort of drum up stories like that is because they want to justify DID. They want to say, look, it's a real thing. How can you be, you know, blind and then not blind? There must be something happening. And and it's it's all an effort to sort of convince the public that DID is real which I think is a noble goal, but I don't know if you want to necessarily go down the road of trying to say those big claims, you know, because it equates DID with these really quirky biological things that just I think are a little unnecessary to to talk about. Having said all that, yeah, I'm sure that some of those claims are supported by the evidence. It's hard to measure even the ones that you said, right? What constitutes writing with two hands, two different things? You know, how articulate was it? But the way that I conceptualize, and because our science about the brain is so rudimentary at this point, we just can't really even answer these questions very uh, well at all. The way that I conceive of 
DID in the way that others do as well is it's a it's a neurological thing. It's not just like a decision you make, right? It's a it's a neurological mechanism that might have even evolved to allow us to cope with difficulties early in life. Right. Right. Through that plasticity of the brain, your neurons actually will situate themselves so that under certain conditions, parts of your psyche are not available or not in operation. And therefore, could you have part of your brain active doing the right hand and part of the, another part of your brain doing the left hand? Yeah, the way I conceive of, of DID, I, I could absolutely see that. And the other thing that she was saying was, this is like, I don't know, I can't, I can't remember how you put it, but the next evolution of life or something, right? It was like, uh, this is, what was the phrase again that they used in the movie? I, I have a quote here, the broken are more evolved. And then I have another quote here that DID is the ultimate doorway to the unknown. And although those statements don't really have any, you know, hard statement to it, you know, it's like, okay, you know, in a poetic way, I suppose that could be true. By implication, I think what the clinician was saying, it was some kind of continuation or something. Well, anyway, the, the movie was trying to make this case that people who have been traumatized have the ability to have special powers, which is ridiculous if, if we're going in the superpower range, which is what they went toward, which I kind of liked because it's like it's M. Night Shyamalan. And, and I, I love the fact that they started bringing back Unbreakable and right. They're going to make us. Did you know they're going to make another movie? I didn't, yeah. but I'm not surprised by the way it uh, it was all set up at the end. That was a nice surprise. That was pretty cool. Yeah. M. Knight has said that he wants to make a third movie in a trilogy, essentially Unbreakable Trilogy. And it looks like James McAvoy's character is going to be called The Horde, right? Right. And it'll be sort of The Horde against Unbreakable. And then Mr. Glass is still around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's just in prison, but he's going to get out, right? Because he's, you know, a genius at manipulating <laughs> people. And so it'll be like the Horde, Mr. Glass, um, Unbreakable showdown that I think would be really interesting. I would watch that. Of course, you have to bow to the idea that in the interest of advocating for dissociative disorders, having a, you know, a movie with a villain called the Horde and, and all this isn't necessarily in the best interest of that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm curious as to how people with DID feel about it. I have a feeling it's probably a mixed reaction. Sorry for the pun. It's probably on one hand great that it's causing you and I to talk about this on a podcast right. and to raise raise awareness. But on the other hand, if the general public walks away with this, I, I don't know, kind of scary version of DID in their mind, because the other thing about this movie is the person with DID was a was an abductor, murderer, terrible person. Right. You know, he he was a, a a psychopathic, horrible human being. I'm sure that the DID community isn't happy about that. You know, people are afraid of mental illness enough as it is. Exactly. Right. So as I'm talking about it, I'm guessing overall it's probably a bad thing. <laughs> My impression of it was that the actual Kevin, the original alter, the original person that he was. I have no reason to believe based on the movie that he was anything other than a normal nice guy that had this trauma happen to him. It was these other alters that were the psychopathic killers and um you know, you can argue that's all the same person and certainly you could argue, argue that. But it you know, it really speaks to the range of <laughs> you know, well, I'm not a killer, but my my alter ego is and I might snap into that at any point. I don't know if that makes it any better. Regarding the blind woman in Germany, I did fact check this. It is posted in the Washington Post and they're referencing a scholarly psych journal. They only refer to the patient as BT. And so this turns out to be misleading because she wasn't, she was blind by psychological factors, not by medical factors, something more akin to a conversion disorder, which for those who don't know is trauma can manifest itself in physical ways. Maybe you lose the ability to walk when you become anxious. This happened in World War II. They called it shell shock back then, but they were traumatized to the point where they temporarily lost their sight, their ability to see. And there was nothing wrong with their eyes, medically speaking. It was in their mind, which is amazing in itself, speaking to the power of the mind. But that was the case in with BT here. She she wasn't medically blind. She was psychologically blind. Um, and when she went into this other altar... She was then able to see. 
So it is misleading in that way. She wasn't – it's not like she didn't have eyeballs or anything like that. And the movie – I'm glad you looked that up because I hadn't heard that case. And that makes much more sense to me that one of the alters yeah. suffered from conversion disorder and th- some of the other alters did not, which makes total sense to me. Just like in the in the movie, they depicted this well. Each one has its own distinct personality. You know, Each one has its own set of coping skills. Um the child was immature. Uh, what was the child's name? I forget his. Anyway, the kid, the, the the nine-year-old boy or whatever. You know, he had a very distinct personality, and he was uh, immature, and he wanted a girlfriend, <laughs> and he liked the way he danced, and he liked to play his CDs. He had his own room with his own toys, his own posters, his own stuff. Yeah, and he saw the world in a simplistic way, and. This is how DID actually is. That was that was pretty accurate. All right. So the DSM-5 is the diagnostic manual that clinicians and psychiatrists and therapists, what have you, use to diagnose patients. Um, so the criteria for dissociative identity disorder is the following. Two or more distinct identities or personality states are present, each with its own relatively enduring pattern of perceiving, relating to, and thinking about the environment and self. Now, this one was clearly true. Kevin had more than two. He would fit into that for sure. Number two, amnesia must occur, which is defined by gaps in the recall of everyday events, important personal information, and or traumatic events. This is something we touched on earlier. Also true in the movie, from my opinion, when he switched personalities, he wasn't, it was a completely separate thing. Um, and you, you had talked earlier about how sometimes you can remember what the other altar was doing in this case, in this movie, that didn't seem to be true. He seemed to genuinely not know what each person was doing. And yet the beast, the final personality that came out, they all seemed to kind of know, they seemed to have a intuitive about what that altar was up to. And, and that was the goal. They were all sort of looking to this new altar to manifest as the savior of all the crises that was going on. So uh, three, the person must be distressed by the disorder or have trouble functioning in one of the major life areas because of the disorder. I think that's certainly true. (laughs) Yeah. Four, the disturbance is not part of a normal cultural or religious practice. Now, this is important and I think is worth touching on. Whenever you are diagnosing somebody, you have to you have to consider the context of their culture. There are cultures where it's perfectly acceptable to um, see visions or talk to uh, a higher power of some kind, depending on the religion or the culture. Um, and you you have to always filter through that rather than jumping to conclusions based on it. Yeah, for some disorders, I think. This, because this is a common clause in many, if not all, the DSM diagnoses, the criterion of it can't be explained by culture. You have to take culture into account. And I'm having a hard time imagining, and I, I, I'd be interested in seeing the literature, and maybe you came across it, about how DID would manifest in a cultural way that would that would rise to the level of which it would meet the other criteria. The only thing I found uh, on that was that in other cultures or in other time periods, it's been mischaracterized as possession by a demon or a devil. But that's in the reverse where we would surmise they have DID, but they were misdiagnosed in the culture as being, you know, possessed by a demon. But, you know, I'm, I'm having a hard time imagining say someone in Papua New Guinea or something in a very different culture than ours in the States, who who I would diagnose with DID, but it's merely a manifestation of their culture. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, oh, okay. I, I got you. I'm having a hard yeah. time imagining a culture that would that would produce the you know underpinnings of motivating someone to exhibit these kinds of uh, you know, I, I can imagine someone saying like, right now I'm going to embody my grandmother or right now I'm going to embody my father, but to not have any memories cross altars or 
to have it Trump, you know, triggered by trauma or to have it uh, ruin your life. You know, I just, I just have a hard time imagining that uh, happening. Yeah. I'm, I'm scrambling for some example. I, I, Oh man, people speak in tongues. They, you know, they channel spirits into themselves or so they say all in the name of a sort of a religious or higher, higher power ideology, but no, nothing, nothing that quite lines up in the way you're talking. Maybe like a medium or something, but even yeah, they would say it's a part of them. They would say they're letting something into them, you know, which DID people right. don't say they. Yeah. It's a conscious act. Okay. Now I'm going yeah. to do this, you know, with DID, it sort of just happens. Right. Hmm. Um, okay. And then the final, uh, criteria is that, uh, the symptoms cannot be due to the direct physiological effects of a substance. This is also a common filter in DSM diagnosing because you want to make sure that they're not high on amphetamines and that's why they're right. psychotic. But again, I can't imagine a scenario where substance use would produce the very specific syndrome of DID. I just, I've never seen that psychosis for sure. Right. But that would that would be mistaken for schizophrenia or something. But I got to put that in there just to make sure. Right. These are these are catch all. So if you do have, you know, it is extremely rare. However, you know, if you do have a friend or a family member or somebody you feel like is in trouble, other symptoms other than the ones we've talked about can include depression, mood swings, suicidal tendencies, insomnia, uh, sleepwalking, anxiety, phobias substance abuse, compulsions or rituals, and then it can include psychotic-like symptoms, which would be, again, the hallucinations and the, the delusions. Not to say that these are things that definitely are included, but these can be. So these are other things you can watch for. So what are some, what are some criticisms we have about Split? Um, I think it gets a little crazy at the end. That would be the obvious place I would jump to. Yeah, until the end... The DID depicted could happen. Let's just put it that way. But when he turns into a monster, and and upon watching the movie, I was like, oh boy, they're really you know pushing it here. But then afterwards, I thought, well, maybe because because you know they say that the beast, which is this new altar that emerges, and that's accurate. Sometimes new altars will will emerge. That's uh, it's not unheard of. But the way they described the beast was it was much taller. It was, you know, stronger. It had long fingers and could climb walls and was a very nasty thing, you know? Yeah. That's something that in the in the beginning of the movie, the therapist is advocating for DID and talking about, you know, these altars can unlock potential within a human being that is almost – superhuman and then they're talking about you know i can they can write with the right hand and the left hand at the same time and i'm like okay sure yeah. different iqs and i'm like okay sure and then they can climb walls yeah <laughs> i'm like um maybe not um i don't know yeah and then you know they tried to kind of logically justify it. you know superhuman long fingers and strength that can grasp onto even the flattest of surfaces and right and then i was like i need to seriously fact check this movie and then when it turns out later on that sure enough he starts uh as the beast uh alter he starts climbing the walls that's when i knew that we had been watching an M. Night Shyamalan movie. I had been reminded of that. Yeah, but upon <laughs> thinking about it later, I thought, well, some of it, I guess, could have happened. Like, he never actually was taller. They just made it seem like he was taller, you know, in that he stood up taller. So you could have just been like, well, he's not actually taller. He just, he just mm -hmm. stands taller with more, you know, life or something. And he wasn't noticeably more muscly. He just, he just looked, he was sweaty and he was panting and he was, you know, he was the same way that Dennis seemed way more bigger than the kid because of the way that James McAvoy held himself, you know, the way that he stood. And we certainly don't have to look that far right. into the community to see stuff like that. You know, I have friends who are like six, three, but if you asked me, how tall they were, I'd say they're shorter than me, even though they're taller than me because of the way they stand and the way they hold themselves in a room, you know? 
Could it also have to do with your relationship with that person? If you see them as an equal rather than if you see them as an authority, I know they've done studies where they, if, if it's your boss, if it's your, uh, an authority figure, if they're wearing a uniform and if they're in a chair higher than you, these things can give you the psychological impression that they are, um, more intimidating, I guess would be a yeah, word. Yeah, absolutely. If, uh, you know, a man is chasing you down a hallway and, it rips off his shirt and he has all these bulging muscles. He's going to maybe seem taller than he actually is, you know? Yeah, makes sense. And to my memory, they never showed his fingers long. So I think they kind of avoided that kind of um, detail. Did, did you remember seeing his fingers at when he became the beast? No, but when he was the beast, I do remember... Um, his veins he, were bigger. He had, yeah, veins kind of popping out of his chest, and he almost looked like he was just about to explode. He looked like Bane from Batman, you know, just kind of green veins sort of coming out of right. all that, sides of him. I, I thought was unrealistic. But, you know, veins, you know, lots of blood pumping. You could imagine adrenaline causing some kind of veiny. I mean, sometimes when I, you know, I'll work out or I'll be doing something kind of different, you know, with my arms or something. I'm trying to think of what else besides working out, but, and my veins are just <laughs> popping out of my arm and I'm just like, what's wrong with me? You yeah. know? And, and normally you yeah. can never see my veins. And so, so you could, you know, it's possible that, you know, that possible. That, that would happen. Yeah. Um, and they didn't change yeah. his character. They didn't change to another actor. So it was just, it was still James McAvoy. It was just kind of shot in a different way. The climbing of the right. walls when he first started climbing the walls was somewhat conceivable because there were actual things to grab onto on the wall because the wall was kind of rough, you know. But then eventually uh -huh. he's like climbing on the ceiling and and it's like, yeah. no, that's you're you're basically a superhuman. You're basically like Superman at that point. You're some kind of. Yeah, there was a Spider-Man-esque quality to when he's chasing her down the hallway, you know, swinging from pipe to pipe, scrambling on the wall. Um, uh, yeah, so most definitely, I think even the best acrobat would have trouble pulling right. that off. Not to say, you know, I do have a lot of faith in human potential and, and uh, untapped potential that we all have within us that has yet to be unlocked. So I, I, I will always leave some room for that possibility. But in terms of realism as we understand it today, yeah, not yeah, so much. It, it plays into that narrative that you're – and they were kind of talking about this in the movie. They are sort of implying it that if under the right circumstances maybe being traumatized, you can tap into parts of your potential that you can't tap into normally which I'm pretty skeptical of. I mean, unless you just sort of look at it metaphorically, uh, like, you know, people who, who go through trauma might have more empathy because they, they know what true pain feels like and, and they've lived a life in which they really enjoy empathy from other people and notice when they're not getting it and therefore just really understand when people are suffering. You know, if we want to call that like a superpower, then great, you know, but to sort of equate DID with like unlocking this, like the ability to climb walls and swing from pipes like it was nothing is, uh, is, right. you know, it's, it's, it's a movie. Um, I would have preferred right. it if they kept it more hyper real so that at the end you would have been like, well, maybe, you know, maybe that could have happened. Maybe he just believes that he's a beast, but he's not really. But, he, but you know, when you believe you're a beast, you can do really terrible things to people, you know, or your adrenaline, like sure. when he bent the bars, right? It's like, you know, you could see that happening. Maybe the bars aren't that strong and maybe his adrenaline is just going so strong that, you know, there's been cases where five-year-olds will pick up a car or something, you know, and... Right. Yeah. You think of the classic case of the, the mom that lifts the car to save her child, that sort of thing. Right. So, you know, that's all within the realm of observable experience. And I would have preferred it if it was that way. But if they're going to match us up with Unbreakable, he can read minds <laughs> by touching them. Right. And right. so they have, you know, they're allowing for a certain amount of supernatural 
elements and which is you know it's fine i i i did you like the movie we haven't talked about whether or not i did i th- i think i'd uh probably give it what did it hold on i even have what it what it was rated here rotten tomatoes gave it a 75 percent from the critics 83 percent from the users so i i think i'd probably agree with that that's probably about right where i would land with it too yeah i get i think i gave it a seven out of ten which is um pretty rare for me i i I reserve sevens for you know movies that I really like. Yeah, I'm I'm glad M Night is back on you know because for a while when his name would come on a trailer, everyone would laugh in the theater. Yeah, and yeah. now he's back on the map, baby. <laughs> That's good. I, I I was like Unbreakable. Holy shit, that was 2002. I mean, yeah. that was a long time ago. Long and there time. are all of a sudden, you know, the end of the movie. There's uh there's Bruce Willis drinking coffee, and yeah. he had done. You know uh, his last name, the character's last name on his on his shirt, and I knew right away. I was like, "No way!" Yeah. So, um, but yeah, yeah, you know the human potential thing. One one could think of uh, Savant as an example, a more realistic example of unlocked potential within human beings: the ability to say, pick up an instrument for the first time and you know play it flawlessly. That sort of thing exists. Yeah. In, in those in those situations, it's more of a matter of your brain is the theory goes being freed up to focus on certain things that other people are too distracted by other things if that makes any sense you know if it one theory goes is with like the ability to do like incredible math as a autistic savant is that your your nervous system is so sensitive that the world is is very painful to you. Loud noises, you know, sensations, bright lights, people. It's all very overwhelming. And so your brain essentially decides to shut that out. And by shutting out all those things, your brain now can focus on other things. You can, from a very early age, start developing a very specific skill that any of us could actually develop. But we just don't dedicate that much time and energy to it because we have other things that we would rather be doing, like playing or watching a movie or something. Similar to um, mindfulness, the idea of weeding out any distractions, not worrying about the future, not worrying about the past, being focused on the moment. I'm a huge proponent of mindfulness and uh, sort of on the same line with that. Yeah, sort of. And again, I have to say that they don't really know why people have savant skills. It, it's just there's just various hypotheses out there as to why. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not meaning to imply that if you meditate, you'll gain the ability to, you know, fly or whatever. And then the last criticism I had was that the guy was bulletproof. <laughs> she shot him with a shotgun, it, I think, twice. Right. Yeah, I forgot. I think I was blocking that out. Yeah, that <laughs> that really took me out of it. I was like, oh, I mean, because, again, as I'm watching it, I'm like, OK, she's she's going to shoot him. And what I wanted to have, I was writing M. Night's script as I was watching it. And I was like, M. Night, make it actual a wound, but make him so adrenalinized that he doesn't care, you know? And and, right. and, that, and then I was thinking, well, maybe that's what they did because sort of. he did, he was injured, you know? Yeah, he was. But it seemed not as injured as he should have been, right? Right. So, you know, but again, they're making... A superhero movie, uh, M. Night version. Right. So, you know, he has a superhero skill. <laughs> yeah, and they do this cool – and they did it Unbreakable too. This They walk a pretty cool line of uh, realism versus, you know, the supernatural. It's kind of playing – they play in the reality of things for most of the movie and sort of twist it at the end. Oh, I had one I had one more thought. The character, the uh, the, the female lead character also had – early childhood trauma. Right. She had a uncle, well her father was died from a heart attack and then her uncle it implied that he was abusive to her in possibly a sexual way. I I was thinking about throughout the movie comparing the different ways that people handle trauma and how she was able to sort of be resilient against it. In fact, it it worked to her benefit when the other two girls were freaking out locked in the room. She kept her calm and her cool and was able to kind of draw on that toughness and that strength, that durability that she had to develop as a child. Whereas the James McAvoy character, you know, completely 
unraveled and decompensated. It's it's just interesting how two people can go through the same thing and come out different on the other side. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that angle. That's that's a very interesting angle to think about her story because we haven't even talked about her yet, <laughs> right? And how her trauma helped her to survive. How her wounds and the scarring that you visibly see—I'm guessing from self abuse, uh, possibly self injury—it yeah. looked like it to me. She was able to survive it and fight back in a way that the other two young women were not able to, presumably because they hadn't been traumatized like she had. Tell me what you think about this. As I was watching it, it felt like M. Night has some kind of fetish about young girls in underwear because <laughs> there was a, a fair amount of of unnecessary mild nudity. You know, each of the... I mean, these girls are in high school, right? And throughout the movie, each of them becomes progressively more and more unclothed. True, yeah. And and the the justification they use is that one character, Dennis, has OCD right. and can't stand any kind of stain. Oh, you got to stain on your shirt. You got to give me that. Give me that shirt. Right. Which, but but yeah, which added to the tension of like, well, what's because that's the whole thing in the first you know half of the movie. You're just like, why is this guy holding these girls? Is he, is he going to kill right. them? Is he going to rape them? We know, and you're you're getting the impression like maybe they're not there to do that, you know, and so. Taking the clothes off adds that creepiness, like, ooh, what's, you know, what's going to happen here? But I, I don't know. It just, there were certain shots, particularly of the, she looked like she was half African American. Mm-hmm. She, uh, there were certain shots of her. I was just like, this feels almost pornographic and yeah. it feels a little unnecessary. Well, I mean, with just taking a shot, it's not a secret to put, you know, sex into a movie to make it more appealing. Yeah. That would be my guess, although I don't know. It was certainly, if that was the intent, it was played off well by the excuse of, well, the character has OCD, and uh, you know that's why they had to take all their clothes off. But uh, who knows? Why didn't he just give who them knows? something else to wear? Right? Why did? Why did? True. I mean, you know, the African American girl, you know, at the end was, you know, she just had under you know small panties on in this like really short sh- tight shirt you know and, and i don't know it just felt now there's nothing wrong with sexuality there's nothing wrong with nudity but it the as i was watching it i just felt like this was m night either doing something very much on purpose or some kind of revealing of his own kind of uh, preferences or something <laughs> i don't know <laughs> well i'm trying to think of his other movies and if they're if it's if that's been displayed in other ones i can't think of anything offhand i, don't I so. didn't see a lot of his middle work in the last 10 years but uh i've watched most of his movies i didn't watch the was it the lady in the lake or something but yeah his yeah. other movies don't have that um i am trying to think if any of his movies have anything close to that but but not nothing that comes to mind in terms of that. So, you know, maybe one movie will let him have his jollies or something. <laughs> I don't know. But but a, a similar story, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane. Have you seen that movie? I have not, no. It's a similar premise. This young woman wakes up in a basement. She's just by herself, though. And she's been abducted by this guy. And the uh, the way that they portray her... Uh, semi nudity or you know disrobing felt less pornographic than this one did. In Ten Clover Lane, it, if anyone's seen it, it it just it feels more sort of, sort of natural, I guess if that makes any sense, um, and less um, overt, I suppose. But anyway, yeah, seven seven out of ten Freuds from your from your psychology friends. <laughs> well, if we're going Freuds, I, I might give it more because the. Oh, I don't know what to say. I guess I'm of I'm of two minds, um, Michael. Uh, uh, on one hand, I think it's terrible because it equates DID with psychopathy yeah. and mm-hmm. murdering people and and eating people's flesh, which is never a good thing for our society. But on the other hand, they in some very real ways depicted DID in a very sympathetic, accurate light. So I don't know. I'm ambivalent, as Freud would say. <laughs> I I think I am too. Kurt. I give it I give it seven I am ambivalences. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been fun, Kirk. This has been fun. Thanks yeah. for going through this movie with me. If anybody has seen the movie and wants to 
provide any feedback to Kirk or I. Kirk's show, Psychology in Seattle, is fantastic, if anybody hasn't heard it. I just caught your show on uh, EMDR last night. Really enjoyed it. It's always very, um, there's always so much to learn from you. So really appreciate your work. And uh, yeah, thanks thanks for meeting with me, Kirk. And uh, it's been fun. Thanks, Michael. It's been fun, yeah. Uh, normally, my movie analysis partner is Umberto. And uh, you gave him a, a run for his money because uh, you're you're an actual clinician, so you actually have like <laughs> smart things to say. And so uh, we should do it again sometime. We should. Walk. I would I would love to. Well, tell him I said hi. I don't want him coming after me. I'm not trying to take his job. I promise. <laughs>